0: Colossians one, we're going to twenty to twenty nine, and I'm going to cycle back a little bit into the early twenties on on these verses. Put them on up. I'm going to read them uh, together. You got a Bible with you? Open that, of course. You got a tablet, but you can follow along with me on the screens here anyway. And uh, we're going to start at verse twenty, and I think it sort of starts halfway through a verse. But anyway, and through him to reconcile to himself, this is God, reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Away we go, next slide. Once you were alienated, you were an alien, you were far away, you were different from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, okay, popular teaching today. Uh, But but now he has reconciled you, this is where we're going to land today on this, okay, Uh, by Christ's physical body through death to present you, and I love this, what a triplet we have here. Do you see it? Number one, holy in his sight. Number two, without blemish. Number three, free from accusation. Right there. Hello? What a lineup of benefits of knowing Jesus. Amen. Next one. All right. And it says this If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel, the good news that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which Paul, I, Paul, have become a servant. Is there more? Is that it? That'll do. Okay. So here we are uh, in, in this uh, series of, uh, of teaching on greater than in Colossians. It's been stunning. Are you enjoying it so far? You connect connecting with it, okay? Well, so far, what we've seen, bit of an overview. Paul has been encouraging the young church about how their faith has inspired him, okay? He kicks off the letter, of course. He's saying, You know when I think about you, I'm moved to, to declare the goodness and the glory of God, okay? And he is just really over overwhelmed and overfull of praise and glory to God for this young church. Now, He shifts gears a little bit, and over the course of the past couple of weeks, you'll have learned this. But he shifts gears, and then he embarks on this kind of masterful journey of expounding not only the reality, but the divinity, and then the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I love that. Jesus is supreme, okay? So when we get to these verses, Paul starts to make the work of Jesus personal, all right? If you can imagine an inverted triangle, an upside down triangle, and Paul's teaching begins in chapter one with the greatness and the expanse and the glory and the goodness of all of that, of of Jesus and who he is, and then he begins to funnel it all down to what it means to you and me, okay? And, And today, we're going to delve into that a little bit, and the primary theme that Paul uses in these verses is this idea of reconciliation. How many people... Have heard that word before, reconcile hands up reconciliation. Okay, and we're going to explore what that is all about and what that means for you and what it means for me as we endeavor with the Holy Spirit's help to live a devoted life as a Christ follower. So, Father, would you help us? Would you, Lord, help us? And some of us, for the first time, God, this will be you know, this will be brand new for others, this will be a reminder. Whatever, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just help us and just to be encouraged with just the enormity and the reality of who Jesus is, and everybody said, "Amen." Amen. At the heart of these words of Paul to this church and today is, of course, the cross of Christ. Everything that is really relating to this Colossians revolves around the cross. And since Paul then unpacks the implications of the cross of Christ to our lives, for me, it's probably then worthwhile asking the big questions. And I don't know if you know the answers to these, whether perhaps you've ever asked these questions before, but have you ever wondered what exactly was achieved by the cross? Have you ever wondered why did God take our place and bear our sin? Have you ever thought what really did he accomplish by his self-sacrifice, his self-substitution? Have you ever wondered what's it really all about? Like I know what we we kind of grow up in I'm going to say Christian Ireland, but this kind of we still have some semblance of it, and we're kind of used to it a little bit. But what's it really all about? theologians answered the question in three kind of ways okay what the cross is really all about and the implications of the cross are three things number one salvation number two revelation and number three conquest love about a conquest Amen. amen John Stott, then theologian, he sums it up like this. What God in Christ has done through the cross is to rescue us, to disclose himself to us, and to overcome evil in Jesus' name. Amen? And that's what the cross is all about. So in other words, because of the cross, you and I, if you're a of Jesus, you are saved. Saved from a lost eternity. Saved from the punishment of all of our sins. Saved from the wrath of God. Can we say that in 2023? But it's a biblical reality we need to get comfortable with. It's not what we've saved to sometimes. It's what we've been saved from in Jesus' name. We need to be encouraged of. Not only are we saved, but the reality Reality is we can know God. That is a beautiful thing. You can know the divine. We can live in this supernatural world with the living God. And not only that, we can understand and believe for all time that the effects of our sin, our shame, and our regret, and our guilt have been obliterated. Amen? And the devil has no power in you, and the devil has no power over you. Amen? And so we don't have enough time then to explore all of these things, salvation, revelation, and conquest. Although that's, that's going to be a tee-up for a series right there, okay? And what I want to do is, if we are going to discover what reconciliation really means for us, what we will have to do is talk about salvation. So we're going to have to play with that a little bit. And the Bible says, of course, today is the day of salvation. So that sounds like a good place to start to me. Amen? All right. Now, let me just tee this up a little bit as well. I said this last week to the guys in Newbridge. The biblical writers of which Paul, of course, was a master. Well, let me say this. The the primary goal of communication is connection. Yes? You can have a great content, but if if I can't convey it to you in a way that you understand, that's lovely. It's just a speech. It means nothing to you. So the idea of all communication verbal written music whatever it is and advertisers of course know this is is connect they want to connect Paul wants to connect, Matthew wanted to connect, Luke wanted to connect, Peter wanted to connect and so one of the ways that they tried to connect to the audience that he knew that was going to read their words, the letters, the epistles, the gospels and so on, they would use image everyone, they would use story, they would use metaphor, they would use all of these things to try and help human minds understand divine principles. Am I making sense? Am I connecting? You get the idea, okay? And so when the Bible writers try to convey to you and me the profound depths and the implications then of salvation... What Paul is doing, and other Bible writers will do it as well, they, 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 they take salvation and they want us to understand it and they break it down into four kind of ways. So they kind of reveal to us what's in salvation, what are the implications of salvation, what metaphors do we use so we can understand it. And they use four types of images, everyone. And the first image is this, the image of propitiation. I'm going to come back to it, okay? And this means to pacify anger. And the language of propitiation that Paul used is the language of religion, of rituals at a shrine. The second image that they would try and use to unpack salvation for you and me is this idea of redemption, okay? And that means, of course, you know, is to pay a ransom. But when the Bible writers used the idea of ransom, they used the language of the market place okay then there was justification another implication of our salvation a benefit if you will is justification and this means to be acquitted of all charges amen remember paul romans 8 who is there will bring any charge against the no one can bring any charges because of jesus there are no charges Amen. And this is the language then of the law courts. But what's this about reconciliation? Reconciliation means to be brought into peace. But look at this. It uses the language of family in biblical terms. It's an incredible thing. You and I know this, the propitiation, redemption, justification, all big Bible words, aren't they? No one uses those words anymore. When was the last time outside of church you heard a human being say propitiation? (laughs) When was the last time any of you ever heard (laughs) propitiation? What I want you to see is that wasn't a Bible word then. It wasn't a New Testament word then. It wasn't a New Testament then. It was a word they would have used in relation to the shrines. Redemption It's a word that's familiar to us. We have it a little bit, but when was the last time you used the word redemption outside of a church setting? Not very often, but I want to encourage you. It was an ordinary word back then. It was the language of the um, marketplace. Justification. Again, we say justified, and I feel justified. So it's a word that we do use a little more, but it was a very ordinary word in the day back then. And it was the language, it was a legal term, a language of the law courts. It means to be acquitted, of course. But I love reconciled, and we, we definitely use that word a lot more, and it's the, it's the idea of family. These were, in, in the day, everyone, ordinary words which ordinary people would know. And in terms of explaining what salvation is and the benefits of it, Paul was using ordinary words to ordinary people so they could come to grips with an extraordinary thing in Jesus. And you can see the imagery places that the population would frequent or would know about, the shrine or the law courts or the marketplace, and they would understand family, and each of them reveals a kind of distinct element of of salvation. And so it's into this language of family, where we're going to go and take the next few minutes, and into this idea of reconciliation that we're going to explore a little bit, if we are going to try and savor and to draw out what Paul really is getting to in our text, Let me ask you this. Anyone ever fallen out with anybody? Come on, hands up now. Let's be honest. We're all at church. Anyone ever fall out with anybody? Anyone currently fall out? Fall out? Anyone currently estranged from a. That's awful, isn't it? Anyone fall out with your better half on the way here? That happens. Anyone kick the dog on the way out? kick a dog, kick a dog, on the way out, that's a metaphor, don't, please don't go, don't. I'll edit that out, okay, just, this is all being recorded, okay, we know what it's like to fall fallen out and it's awful and especially when it goes on longer than you thought and I don't know about you but I, I don't like saying sorry, anybody, I don't like that at all because sorry then implies it was my fault. That's what sorry means, and I don't like anything being my fault. It typically, generally is, but nevertheless, it doesn't make it any easier. No one likes to fall out with anyone. No one likes, we all all know what it likes to feel like, and it doesn't feel kind of right, does it? It feels kind of weird, and it feels weird when you see them in the street, or do you ever do this when you're in Aldi or Tesco's and you see them on the aisle? And you would like dodge an aisle and you you go the other way or whatever. Don't lie to me. You're very quiet. I'm on your case. This happens. I'm serious. It's it's a hard thing. The truth is it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel very natural. It doesn't feel good to be estranged. It doesn't feel quite right to be apart. And the reality is that God has made us to live together and to be together in relationship. That's why it doesn't feel quite right when we are estranged with people. Anyway, this, this is my point, and I want us to get about reconciliation. Number one, reconciliation assumes the reality of an existing relationship. You can pop that up there now. You see it? It assumes the reality of an existing, this is so important, I want you to get this, of an existing relationship. You cannot be reconciled to someone you don't know. Yes? So reconciliation implies two parties that once hung out that no longer do. The second thing is that reconciliation assumes the reality of a breakdown of that relationship because if it wasn't broken down, there's no need to reconcile. It's good, but reconciliation and the need thereof assumes the need for healing and restoration. We're going to call it reconciliation, family language. And the third thing about reconciliation is that it is the restoration of that existing relationship. It's not the the restoration of a a random relationship. No, no, it's of the existing relationship that used to exist, that no longer exists, but now is reconciled. You're getting the kind of gist. And this is so important. Because reconciliation to God is part of the salvation piece, it's part of the salvation benefits. And if our part of salvation is our reconciliation to God, then the language of reconciliation suggests the existence of a previous relationship between God and humanity that is now broken down. Church, this is my conviction. Humankind, all of us, were and are, and I don't think I'm going to get any doubters in the room, we're designed to be in relationship with God. Amen? Amen? We're designed, we we have eternity in our hearts. And I got no joke with this one. But because of our sin, because of our mess, because of giving in the temptation, temptation is what? It is the attempt to satisfy a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. When the devil said, did God say? And when you eat of this, you know what, whatever. Temptation does that. Temptation over and it under delivers. And you find this out with experience. But it was our sin and it was our mess. It was us, everybody. And the relationship break down. And when you get to know the Bible a little bit, what you discover, if you, if you can take a, like a, an overview of the story, what I'm going to call a meta-narrative, an overview of the narrative, an overview of the whole thing. What you discover all the way from Genesis to Revelation is a God who tries time after time after time after time to reconcile the relationship we broke We offended him and he goes all out to restore the relationship with us. He says, I'll make them my people and then I'll give them my country and then I'll live in the middle of them in a tabernacle, then in a temple. I know, then I'll send my prophets. Better still, I'll send my son and then I'll send my spirit. Then I'll build my church and then I'm coming back myself. All of these things, everyone, are incredible clues of how much the heart of the Father is to reconcile the relationship we destroyed in the garden. It is, the Bible is this epic love story, this Netflix classic. Epic tale of an innocent parent trying to woo a rebellious child back into the family dynamic because that is where we were meant to be, and yet we see it day after day. God's love is being poured out, and yet we play out as if it doesn't. Matter, we society lives on, tries to live on without him, silencing this inherent eternal desire that we have with each our our hearts and. This yearning to live in relationship, this yearning to seek the supernatural, this yearning for significance to matter, this, this endless, relentless gnawing and ache for meaning and deep peace and purpose. And what we do is then we kind of, I don't know about you, but I, I've done this, we stuff our lives with temporary toys, cheap imitations of the real thing, false idols who have said they, they over-promise and they under-deliver all the time. All in this effort to try and satisfy this existential crisis that we have in our soul. Open ours, we, we have a vision and a mission. Do you like the new banners? They're new to me. they're very fancy, they're a lovely color. And the vision is this to build a life-giving church that reaches the nations of Ireland. Amen, what, what a great vision. Simple vision. We can get part of that vision, yes? Am I on? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, that's the vision of the house. When you come into the house, you, you, you attach your, your rope onto the vision. I can be part of this to build a life-giving church that we're all in this vision together. And why do we have a vision? We have a vision because we have a mission. And the mission is this, to see people experience life change through Jesus Christ. No other way. Without Jesus Christ, this is just another charity. Yes, without Jesus, this is just a talk. Without Jesus, it's just some kids' lessons coloring in the back room there. Without Jesus, just taking coffee. This is a speech. Amen. But with him. Oh, this is the most dangerous place in Dublin. Amen. Life change comes about when people are reconciled to the father. When they are restored back into the relationship from all humanity, from where we were meant to be, through faith in Jesus. And I want all of us to be involved, everyone, in this incredible mission. Not pointing others to church, pointing others to Jesus. I've got to tell there's no salvation in church. I go to here, I go to there, I'm part of. It means nothing for eternity. It'll stimulate faith, it'll build community, it'll stir your gifts, it'll do all of those things, but it'll not get you into heaven. We don't come to church, we come to Jesus, and because we come to Jesus, we come to church. Amen? Let's not get the order mixed up. But when we bring people to Jesus, we know this, that people can be set free, they can be forgiven, and they can be restored to full life for all eternity, they could be reconciled back into family. So let me just bring this home with two things. Two driving cores then behind reconciliation. Number one is the unrelenting love of the Father. The unrelenting love of the Father. God is relentless. Have you ever been with an unrelenting person? Oh, they're annoying. People walk through airports fast. And these boys go fast and you're like dragging behind them. Run my dad plays golf. I used to play golf. Then I had children. <laughs> and I decanted all my clubs to the roof space. Recently they've made it down from the roof space. And they're in the garage. So it's, we're getting closer to using them. It was a couple of boxing days ago or since Stephen Day. And, uh, but, well, it was a few years ago, I guess. And my dad and mum came up to ours for Christmas, our boxing day, and stayed a few days. And dad says, I'm bringing the clubs, I'm bringing the clubs. I said, well, bring the clubs. Don't know what, you going know, there with but let's bring them. And, uh, and next day, after it was the 20, 27th, 28th, around then December, let's go play golf. I went, right, okay, let's go play golf. And uh, got a course near us. It's the nice hotel course. It was a dry day, wasn't too bad, not much rain around. So we thought, okay, we'll go and do whatever. I'm limbering up you know, about to shoot my lesson. doesn't matter how old you are. i got to beat the old fella. And uh, so we're teeing up and I got the thing there, the ball. You can see the thing there. I'm good with the language. I got the thing, the wee round thing there on the wee plastic thing, tee. And I'm about to go. And he goes, stop there. I went, what? He says, stop there. Use this. And into his, into, into his uh, sort of bag and he brought out this driver. It was a ping something the head on this driver right massive massive it's like I was huge that you can't mess with this thing he says try that I brought this for you I goes no (laughs) because you never you know you never outgrow this I says no no I'm good with the one I have thanks very much he says try it I says, no, I'm good with the one I have. It's fine. This is my club. I'm used to it, even though it's been in the roof space for 18 years. Uh, It's it's fine. Uh, Try the club. I says, no. He says, look, you'll hit the the thing straight. You'll hit the ball. It'll go farther. It'll be a fantastic shot. You'll probably beat me. I'll regret giving you this club. Take the club. I said, no, take the club. No, take the club. No, take the club. It's gonna be a long day. Give me that club, whatever. I'm teeing up with this thing. Bang! Oh, and right now. Straight as a die. It belied my skill. Everybody, I have to say, it made me look fantastic. And my dad, I did. We we played for that. We played for us. We played for a pound. We had a bet on the whole game. The whole game, a pound, and I took the pound off him. It was wonderful. <laughs> <coughs> because he gave me his club. I want you to notice the interplay between a willing father and a stubborn son. And I want you to know this, that my dad was more willing to give than I was willing to receive. But this is what I want you to notice, that his willingness to give was not diminished by my unwillingness to receive. He kept on going, on going, take the club, take the club, take the club, take the club, take the club. Let me put it another way. His love for me was not diminished by my rejection of him. And we see this displayed by Jesus. When in Luke 23, 34 from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Here and elsewhere throughout Scripture, we encounter a God whose love for humanity is not lessened by humanity's rejection of Him. Why? Because He's He knows his love. He's confident in his own love. He's confident in his son. He knows what Jesus can do. He knows what happened at the cross more than we can ever understand. He knows his love will drive a golf ball further and faster than anything we could ever do by ourselves. He knows about love. He knows about his son. He knows that faith in the son will change lives here and it will change lives there. He knows that the love that he has is the truest form of love on the earth. And God remains confident in it. God's not walking around going, what do we do now? Is there any better way that I could reckon? There's no better way. There's no other way. There's no other name by which men can be saved than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the best way. He's not being exclusive. He doesn't need another way. The way exists. It is the demonstration of God's love for us. And in the face of continual rejection and denial and rebellion and slander of that love, God's still planting churches. God's still increasing the kingdom. God's still saving souls. He's still healing bodies. He's still bringing people into the kingdom of God because he loves people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Come okay, well, on, we gotta love people as well. There are some people make it really hard to love, don't they? Yes. Do you know you're hard to love some days? Yes. Just ask your spouse. If you ask Judith, "I'm hard to love." She will say, "Yes," too quickly for my liking. But Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. As for you, you lot, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, and Paul brings himself, me included, he says, all of us lived among them at one time, doing whatever we wanted. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of death. But, what a pivot, but, but, but. Because of his average love, because of his tiny little love, because of, well, one sort of Thursday afternoon he was because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, stuffed with mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were, that's how much he loves you. And when you didn't even know that he believed in you, when you didn't believe in him, he still went to the cross. It is by grace you have been saved. And the second thing is this then. It's the unrelenting sacrifice of the Son. Amazing. If you get caught speeding down here, do you get like a driver's awareness course? Do you get to go that? Is that a thing here? No. So in the north, when you get caught speeding and you haven't been caught within a three-year period, Instead of getting penalty points and a fine, you get invited to go on a driver's awareness course. Jeffrey's over there. Jeff's nodding his head. he spent thousands of those, hundreds of them. And, uh, and they're, they're, I mean, they're just like four hours long, and you're totally patronized by somebody on the other end of the thing about not driving too fast. Good job, good job there, absolutely. <coughs> And I was on one recently. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. It was the car. It's the car's fault. It my fault. That thing's made to be driven. <laughs> Tooting along there. Anyway, I had one of those. And it was on Zoom, which is great. Because sometimes you have to go to Coleraine or Belfast or somewhere. And that was great to have the house. And... Uh, Sit for four hours and you have to get involved. You have to get involved. So they ask you questions and all. They, they play out scenarios and videos. And, you know, I mean, it is, to be fair, you, you come away going, right, wow, repeater signs, 60 miles an hour. And you, you have to say, it's not bad, actually. It's a good thing. But what got my attention, right, is the words of the tutor of how he ended the class, okay? He said four things that I'll never forget. He said this, number one, do you know, because you've done this course, it is as if you've never committed the crime. Now, as a preacher, like, oh, I always, always say. Then he said this, you do not have to report it to your insurance. Why would you? Because it never happened. And then he says this, there's no, there's no fine to pay. That's all taken care of. And then I love this. He says, and as far as I and the police are concerned, it never happened. Hello? In that moment, everybody, I was what Paul writes in verse 22. Holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. The big difference, of course, between my driver awareness course and having peace with God is is that I had to take the course. I had to pay the price. I had to, there was a fine. You had to, it's like 80 quid to go on the course. They get you anyway. I still had to go for the four hours. But if I push the metaphor, the gospel says, Jesus takes the speed awareness course for me. And because he takes it for me, I don't have to take it. And then this is the beautiful thing about it. Because he takes the course, all the benefits that should be applied to him are applied to me. Even though I broke the law, he pays the price. He takes my punishment and all the benefits from the course are put on me. It is because of Jesus. It is as if I've never committed the sin. I don't have to report the sin anymore. There is no fine to pay for my sin anymore. And as far as I, the PSNI, I'm God above and the Father in heaven. When he looks at me, he sees the blood of the Son. It just never happened. The unrelentless love of the Son. He removes every sin. Worship to you guys. You're free to come back up. He removes, everyone, the stains. He removes the judgment. He removes the accusations. He removes, listen to this. Never mind the band. You know what they look like. Look at me. Listen to this. He removes every trace of my past life because of Jesus and before God, before the Father. I am, you are in this moment, right now, holy in His sight. You are without blemish and free from accusation. Look at me. That's the truth. But the reality is you don't feel very holy you don't feel unblemished and there are definitely seasons in our lives where we do not feel that we are free from accusation because the enemy wants to remind you of who you were what you were what you said what you did but I want you to know Bible says that Jesus took the driver awareness course that he took the cross what is salvation it is conquest it is the obliteration of the work of the enemy Without blemish, I don't feel. By faith, the fact is you are without blemish. He washes. And because you have no blemishes, no markers, before the Lord you are free from accusation. And I'll read you a story it's written by Richard Seltzer he's a surgeon and he writes this about a young couple he says I stand by the bed where a young woman lies and her face is post-operative her mouth is twisted in a palsy it's almost clownish he said a tiny twig on the facial nerve the one to the muscles of her mouth has been severed she will be like this from now on The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. But nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, he says, I had to cut the nerve, leaving her slightly disfigured. Her young husband is in the room and he stands on the opposite side of the bed and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me and their private. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth that I have made. Who gaze and touch each other so generously, so greedily. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles and he says, I like it he says it's kind of cute all at once I know who he is I understand and I lower my gaze one is not bold in an encounter with a God listen to this unmindful he bends to kiss her crooked mouth and I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers to show her that their kiss still requests.